tell from the sniffles and the, uh, the coughs and the runny nose that spring is here. Uh, and with it, the flowers. It, it, it's always been, I'm constantly, this is my third spring in Wisconsin, and it just always amazes me how quickly things just green up here. Uh, we may not have much of a spring, but when it arrives, it arrives in force. And so already the buds on the trees are starting to burst into leaves. Our yard, which was flat and brown, quickly became lush and green, and I'm going to need to mow it. Uh, Titus has already brought a bouquet's worth of dandelions to be displayed on the kitchen table in this special cup. Uh, it's spring is here. It's, it's a time for life. It's a time when you feel good. Probably you're planning on being outside today if you can. As enjoyable as it is, though, to see everything shedding its winter dormancy, I think it's definitely worth remembering that much of the life we see around us was only made possible through a certain kind of death. The fresh new leaves that we see sprouting on the trees are there because the, of the, the leaves last year of last year made way for them. The new sprouts that are coming out of our rhubarb plant are only following the script of the ones before it. The dandelions that Titus has proudly displayed on our kitchen table were once scattered seeds blown away from their parent by the wind only to land and be planted and to be grown into a new place to the detriment of my neighbors. <laughs> As I've been thinking about spring, it reminds me of something that Jesus said to his disciples in John chapter 12 as he was preparing to go to the cross. This is what he said. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Well, what Jesus says is true. When a seed is scattered and planted in the ground, it undergoes a certain kind of death, but it also brings forth a certain kind of life. It's not difficult to see the connection of what Jesus said about a grain of wheat as it falls to the ground and what he was about to accomplish when he went to the cross, which is what he meant when he said the time had arrived for the Son of Man to be glorified. On the cross... Jesus suffered and died for our sin. Like a seed that is put in the ground, so his body was planted in the grave. But on the third day, he rose again, and in his life, he has secured life for all who believe in him. Now, this is not all that Jesus said concerning this parable in John 12. In verses 25 and 26, he actually expands this calling to his disciples. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. We are to understand then that Jesus calls his people to lay down their lives as he laid down his. Sometimes, literally, as we see in the case of Stephen. When we're joined to Christ by faith, we become different. We become new creatures. No longer are we controlled by a desire for sin or by a will that is enslaved to the passions of the flesh. Rather, we take on new desires, new priorities, a new love restored to live really as we were created to do. Where we once treasured darkness, now we treasure the light of Christ. This temporary life gets swallowed up by the light of eternal life that we, which we have in Jesus. And our place with Him as His servants is what we're looking at in our passage today.
In Acts chapter 8, and verses 1 through 8, Luke tells us about how Jesus actually expanded his kingdom from Jerusalem into the regions of Judea and even Samaria. Now the way he did that might surprise you. Since what we see is that this actually occurred through the persecution of the church and the scattering of the church abroad. Like dandelion seeds blown in the wind, so we find members of the church in Jerusalem being blown out into the world where the gospel bears fruit and where new churches begin to form across the landscape. So with that in mind, let's stand please as we read from our text. Once again, I'll be reading Acts chapter 8 starting at verse 1, the second part of verse 1, and into verse 8. This is the word of the Lord. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So, there was much joy in that city. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God for it. Please be seated. Well, this is a passage that begins with grief, but it ends with joy. It's a passage that assures us, I think, of the greater plan of God, which then gives us courage to live boldly for the sake of the gospel, and which assures us of the ever-present authority of Christ that goes with his servants as he sends them out to carry the mission out which he has called us to do. This, This is a passage that shows us that Satan's rage cannot undo God's perfect purposes. And it teaches us to trust in the work of our King, Jesus Christ, which He is pleased to do through us. Finally, this is a passage that teaches us not to despair when the world seems to prevail. So, I have the main idea, I think, as we look at this verse, these verses, is simply this. That God scattered the church to spread the church. God scattered the church to spread the church. He scattered the church really to gather the church in. And that's what we're looking at today. So in our time this morning, I want to I look at two ideas, two, two things we see going on in the text. And then I want to look really um, at a question that I think naturally arises out of this as we think, think about how this passage applies to our own lives. So we'll be looking first at the scattered church. The scattered church. Second, we're going to look at the gathered church. Gathered church. And then I want to distill some practical principles for us as we try to answer this question of when do I stay and when do I go? When when do I know when Christ is calling me to stay and when do I know when Christ is calling me to go? So, I'm going to begin first by looking at the scattered church. Now, Now, remember, this is the aftermath of Stephen's death. And Luke tells us that on the day of Stephen's death, something changed in Jerusalem. 
Now up to this point, the Jewish leaders really had only messed with the apostles. They had arrested them, they had beaten them, they had threatened them. But with Stephen, they had crossed into new territory. Up till now, those, those men of authority were too afraid, really, of the opinion of the people to make good on the threats against, they had made against the church and the apostles. But Stephen had been executed on the charge of blasphemy. And that really opened up a door for how these leaders were able to deal with the church itself. Public opinion had been swayed against the church because of the way Stephen had been misrepresented. And so Luke tells us that on the day of Stephen's martyrdom, a great persecution came against the whole church in Jerusalem. As a result, we see that the church was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So everything we've been reading in the book of Acts so far has been taking place in one city, in Jerusalem. Now we're going regional to Judea and Samaria. Luke actually says that they all, they were all scattered throughout these regions. Though I, I take that all to mean um, similar to how he, he, Luke writes, how he uses that, and how many of the other New Testament writes when they use the word all, really to mean that a great number of the believers in Jerusalem are scattered abroad. I, I don't think we're meant to understand that there ceased to be a church in Jerusalem. Uh, and even as these first Christians fled from Jerusalem, Luke says the apostles themselves stayed. And it's very clear from the rest of Luke's writings and other New Testament books that the, the church never really was not present in Jerusalem. So I have to understand that a little bit. Um, now, some scholars interpret this to mean that Luke is specifically talking about Hellenistic believers. And while I think that might help to explain why Luke would use the word all here, even while, uh, even while it's clear that there's believers still remaining in the city, Luke actually doesn't make that distinction himself. So, what I think we're meant to understand is that from the day that Stephen was murdered, believers really were on the run from the Jewish authorities. And they spread out throughout the region. Now, the city itself seems to have really a mixed reaction to Stephen's death. In verse 2, Luke says that there were some devout men who buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Uh, while that could mean that these were believers, uh, it, this is also a term that Luke typically uses to refer to devout Jews who were at maybe open to the message of the gospel, even if they weren't actually followers of Christ. So the scholars are kind of split on who these devout men are, um, but it really seems like that's probably the best explanation for what's going on here. So the picture is this. The church itself is being scattered. It's on the run. But these devout men, whoever they were, courageously collected Stephen's body, they buried it, and they publicly mourned him, apparently without any repercussions from the Jewish authorities, which is very interesting because the Mishnah, or the, the manual that regulated how all these things are supposed to go down, actually forbid burial for someone who had been stoned. In fact, it, it forbid anyone from making a public lamentation of someone who had been stoned. So by recording this, Luke is actually trying to, to help you understand uh, the sort of impact that Stephen had in his life and in his death on, on really the city as a whole. And he means to convict the Jewish leaders who had had him killed, showing that what the, the, all these things, these laws and traditions they were so passionate about, they didn't actually follow through in Stephen's case. Now, while there were people like these devout men who were sympathetic towards the church, we see that there were others, men like Saul, 
who did everything in their power to try and stamp the church out. Apparently, Saul was not content to just watch over the coats of others. He decided that he was going to do something about the church too. And so in, con- and so in contrast to these devout men that Luke talks about who, who had buried Stephen and made lamentation over him, Luke says, but Saul, ravaging the church, entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the idea is that Saul, his passion has just been enraged. He was passionately committed to try and rooting the church out. And Luke means for us to understand that Saul actually was leaving a serious mark on things. The word that Luke uses here, uh, which has been translated for us as ravaged, actually only occurs once in the New Testament, right here. And it's a word that was typically used to describe the destruction of a city or the way that a wild animal would mangle something. So the idea here that Luke is trying to convey to you is that Saul is quite literally tearing the church apart dragging men and women out of their very homes in the name of God, having them thrown into the prison, presumably either to die there or to stand trial before the Jewish council in the way that Stephen had been. If we fast forward a little bit to chapter 9, Luke actually goes so far as to describe Saul as, as this is something of his breathing. He's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, which just gives us an idea of how committed he was to trying to end the church. He saw Jesus and the testimony of the apostles as something that was poisonous. He loathed the church, and he was committed to destroy it by any means possible. The persecution of the church became the reigning passion of Saul's life, something that he talks about in some of his writings after he actually became a Christian. Now, through the work of Saul and men like him, it really became a dangerous thing to call yourself a follower of Jesus. At any time, the foot of Saul's sandal might be breaking down your door. And it meant being drugged through the streets, thrown into prison. So as a result, we see that the church, which had grown at this point to include thousands of people in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, was scattered abroad, cast into the wind, put on the run. And from the perspective of verse 3, it really looks like Satan may just have won, may just have scored a major victory here. One of the fundamental activities of the church, which we saw starting all the way back in chapter 2, is that it gathers together. The word that we translate church, ecclesia, actually means the gathering or the assembly. It's hard to do that when men like Saul are kicking down people's doors and dragging them from their homes and throwing them into prison. So make no mistake, this is a dark day for the church. The darkest, I think, that it had seen to this point since Jesus had had been betrayed and crucified on the cross. But even though it seems for a moment like Satan is prevailing against Christ and his church here, we realize as we continue on in this passage that the scattering of the church was actually achieving God's plan for his people and the spread of the gospel. As we look at verses 4 through 8, we see that God actually allowed the church to be so scattered so that he could, in fact, gather many more of his sons and daughters to himself. So that brings us to our our second point we're going to look at, which is the gathered church. In verse 4, Luke says that those who were scattered actually went about preaching the word. So while they had been driven out of Jerusalem, they did not stop 
speaking the gospel to others. Now, you and I might think, well, you know, after something like that happened in Jerusalem, it, it might be a good idea to just keep your head down for a little bit, establish your place, you know, get to know your new neighbors, and, and just let things calm down a little bit. But that's simply not the case. The scattered church was not a defeated church. And they did not allow themselves, that these believers did not allow themselves to be controlled by the fear of what might happen to them if they went on speaking in Jesus' name. So they kept on going. They kept on doing what Jesus had called them to do. They kept on being his witnesses. The good news of the gospel, we see, was expanding from one city, Jerusalem, into the regions of Judea, which immediately surrounded Jerusalem, and even to Samaria in the north. Saul and the Jewish leaders managed to scatter the church, but they weren't able to silence it. I really like what John MacArthur's comment is when he, when he says, the persecution of the church, which seemed to be a negative, was in reality a positive factor. It led to the first great missionary outreach by the early church. Satan's attempt to stamp out the church's fire merely scattered the embers and started new fires around the world. So as we look at the tragedy of Stephen's death and the scattering of the church abroad, we have to look through, uh, through the suffering to see the greater picture of what God was doing through these things. We must see that even as the church suffered in this way, it's a, it's a painful thing to be driven from your home. So even as we see that suffering, we have to understand that the authority and the power of Christ was not been overthrown. God had permitted this moment of suffering to accomplish something greater, something more glorious, the expansion of the gospel into all the world. Now to make sure that we understand that God is still in control, even when we go through times that try us and stretch us and even threaten to break us, Jesus tells us in John 16, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you rem may remember that I told you. Why would Jesus say that to his disciples? So that when the moment of suffering comes, when that, that time that stresses us and stretches us and threatens our faith, that we'll not be overcome by it. Paul, or sorry, that's his later name. Saul was a man who thought he was in fact doing God a favor by persecuting the church as he was. That was why he was so passionate about it. In their blindness, the men who sat on that ruling council in Jerusalem thought the same. They thought they were, uh, they were acting out of a, uh, out of a, of a passion for, for God's name, when in fact they were actually acting out of a willful blindness to God. Stephen establishes that, and out of the stubbornness of their own hearts. Still, we see that even as they opposed God, and as they opposed God's people, they opposed the church, we see that the plan of God to expand the kingdom of Christ into the darkness actually succeeds because of it. God prevailed over these men who were so committed to stamping out the church and we see it was actually through their opposition that he secured this victory over them. Even in the face of such hostile opposition, the church of Christ could not help but to speak about the glory of Jesus and the gospel. 
So we see in verses 5 through 8, Luke actually tells us particularly about a man named Philip, known, known as, uh, also as Philip the Evangelist, who was one of those seven men who had been chosen by the church in Jerusalem to serve. So he was there in Jerusalem with Stephen. He actually served with Stephen. And now we see that in the aftermath of Stephen's death, Philip has found himself thrown out of Jerusalem, but in the city of Samaria, where Luke tells us he proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, this is a big deal. And you may not realize how big of a deal it is uh, if you miss that Samaria, the fact that he, of where he is. We are seeing the same message which the apostles have been preaching in Jerusalem, in the temple. A message that Stephen had spoken, which he defended before the Jewish council, being preached here, now, in the city of Samaria, to Samaritans. The message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who took on human nature, who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled the law, who was the one of whom Moses had spoke, who went to the cross where he made atonement for sin, was buried and was raised in accordance with the scriptures, and that God had now exalted him as Lord and Christ over all with a promise that all who believe in him will not perish in judgment, but will have eternal life with him. That is what Philip spoke when, when Luke says that he proclaimed the Christ to them. That, that's, that's like three words describing all of that. He proclaimed the Christ to them. This is a big deal. And it's a big deal for a number of reasons. I just want to point out two. First, by proclaiming Christ to these people in Samaria, Philip is actually fulfilling the word and plan of King Jesus to bless not only the Jews, but also the world. This, was, this, is, a, this is a following the command that Jesus had given his church in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you can remember back to when we first started this book, where Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but not just there, and in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So Jesus' word is literally taking place before our eyes as Philip stands in the city and proclaims this message, this good news to these people in Samaria. Phase two of Jesus' kingdom expansion plan is in place. It's, it's happening. The Samaritans are hearing about Jesus. They're hearing about the coming of God's Messiah, about this new and better Moses who doesn't bring a law that condemns us but who brings grace and truth that sets us free from sin to live in the brilliance of his presence and his glory. To worship God, not on a mountain, not in a temple, but to worship him in spirit and in truth. The second reason this is important is that by proclaiming Christ to these people, we see that God was destroying certain dividing walls which were formerly in place, but which now had been removed by the work of Christ. It's a big deal that the gospel is going out to Samaritans. The Samaritans are what you might call half-breed Jews. They were descended from Jewish families who had been left by the Assyrians in the 700s 
to, to remain in northern Israel, who had then intermarried with the people who the Assyrians had brought in after they had exiled the rest of the population to other places. That's what the Assyrians would do. To keep you from rising up, they would take you out of your homeland, they'd take you and plant you somewhere else, and then you're living in a foreign place, and you just kind of like, oh, I don't think I'm going to fight for a land that's not mine. So the Assyrians had done that with northern Israel. They had brought foreigners in. And the, the few Jews who remained got woven into that. So there was a, a, an issue going on there. Now, there, besides intermarrying with the, uh, these people, the, we see that the Samaritans' ancestors had, had worshipped God, but they had also worshipped the other gods of these other people as well. So they had compromised the truth. Additionally, uh, they had rejected the temple in Jerusalem as being the place of worship, and they chose instead to worship on a mountain in Samaria called Mount Gerizim. So at this point in time, uh, at, at, after Jesus' time, uh, we actually the Samaritans didn't worship other gods anymore. They worshipped the one true God, but they still worshipped him on their own terms. And so as a result, as the Jews get restored back to Israel, we see that the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along with each other. In fact, they despised each other. But here is Philip, a Jew, in Samaria, proclaiming to them the good news of Christ the King. Not only that, Luke tells us that it was bearing great fruit. So these Samaritans are listening to Philip, and they're hearing what he's saying, and they're saying, this, this makes sense. God is moving in their life. People were coming to faith as the gospel came to them in word and in power. Luke says that the crowds were with one accord paying attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they heard him and saw the signs that he was doing, and Luke says that the unclean spirits were coming out of people. Paralyzed people, lame people were being healed. And the result of this is that there was much joy in the city. What a different response we're seeing from the Samaritans versus the, the Jewish council that had killed Stephen. Jesus had once spent time in Samaria where he met a woman at a well, an outcast, a sinner, who came to draw water in the middle of the day when it was hottest, when no one else wanted to be there because she didn't want to have to face the scorn of her own people. And this is what Jesus said to her. She actually got into a theological debate with Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, that's, that's that mountain that Samaritans worshipped on, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Now, she had answered Jesus, I, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when He comes, He'll tell us these things. To which Jesus had responded to her, I who speak to you, am he. For all their theological woes, for all their mixed pedigree, the Samaritans were in fact looking for a Messiah, for the Christ. So when Philip shows up in Samaria, on the run from the Jewish leaders, proclaiming to them that this Messiah had come, and they saw, the, they heard the word, and they saw the work of his power, 
we see that the hour Jesus had told the woman of, what he had spoken of, had in fact arrived. Jesus had conquered sin, death, and the grave. No longer is the dwelling place of God in a building, in a temple, but it is in the very hearts of his people. You know, we can't really say if this would, would never have happened if the great persecution against the church hadn't arisen. But here's what we can see very clearly from this text, is that God used that. He used the pressure that was put on the church to bring this message of good news to these people in Samaria. That's, that's part of the reason that we can look at the scattering of the church after Stephen's death and understand just a little bit of why God allowed that to happen. Because God sovereignly and victoriously reigns, the gospel came to the people in this city through the witness of Philip. The signs that were done by the apostles were then done there, and people saw the truth behind his words. This wasn't a new philosophy on life. This was the hope they had longed for, coming to them out of Jerusalem, as Jesus had said, but coming to them nonetheless, and breaking down barriers that would have otherwise remained, leading them into great joy, the, only kind, of, the kind of joy that only comes through faith in Jesus. As I, as I read this, I can't help but think of Jesus' words in John 10, where he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. For just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So for years, the Samaritans and the Jews had been at each other's throats. But the gospel, preached here, even as the church is on the run, broke that down. And we see that the reason God allowed the church to be scattered was so that he could gather in these beloved sheep, not of the fold of Jerusalem, but who belonged to Christ anyway, because he died for them and because he rose for them. It's a hard thing to say goodbye to friends, especially brothers and sisters in Christ. The summer before Ellie and I came here, we actually got the chance to see some friends overseas, uh, who live in a place where preaching the gospel uh, can be deadly. It's a hard, hard thing to look into the eyes of those people who are, who are family to you and to know that you may never see them on this side of eternity. It's a hard thing. You feel scattered from them. I remember, I remember one brother in particular as we were saying goodbye in a train station say, see you in heaven. And when you hear somebody you love say something that, like that to you, you don't know the future. I may very well see him. I hope I will. But at minimum, we know we'll meet there. That's having something like that happen, it will shock you. And yet, as I look at this passage and I see the scattered church, I, I can't help but see the faces of those friends. The believers in Jerusalem who were scattered from Jerusalem had no guarantee they would ever see each other again in that lifetime. And while I'm sure there was great sadness in their hearts as they were scattered out to different places, their joy was not diminished because they had a greater hope. Because the scattered church never lost sight of Jesus' calling on their lives or his promises that he will one day gather himself, gather us to himself, they went on boldly. 
And they embraced where God had called them to be, just like Philip did when he wound up in the city of Samaria. So it is with the church today. The sun never sets on the kingdom of God. God has scattered his people out to different parts of the world. We, we just prayed for Nathan and Kristen Muse, right? They're on the other side of the world. And we have, we have this connection to them. And we know and love them. And we rejoice in what God is doing with them. And we're able to have that joy because we know one day there won't be that space separating us. We will rejoice together in the presence of God. I can think of a, of a few families in our church, even within the last few years, that God has taken to different places for, for, some, 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 for many reasons that are very good. And you, you know how hard it is, how painful it is to say goodbye to people you love. But we always have this hope dwelling in us as believers, this, this hope and this unity of faith which assures us that God has great purposes whether he keeps us here or whether he sends us out. And that purpose, to it is, that purpose fundamentally is to exalt Christ by bringing the light of the life of Christ to others. When we say goodbye to one another, when, when God scatters us, we don't despair because he assures us it is only to gather us in again. I love, I love this. There's a line. So the official hymn of the seminary I went to is a song that was written by one of the founding professors called Soldiers of Christ and Truth Array. And, and it goes like this, the, the, last, the last one. And it means a lot to me because it's, it's a song we sang at the commencement where you literally, you're going to say goodbye to a bunch of brothers and sisters in Christ. You're never going to see them again. Like some of these people are going to go to the other side of the world, places they can't talk about. And you sang this song together. We meet to part, but part to meet. When earthly labors are complete, to join and yet more blessed employ in an eternal world of joy. There are no accidents in this life. God has called us to his service. He has called us to the place where he has called us to serve. And until he takes us somewhere else, even if we have to say goodbye, we can do that in joy, knowing that he will one day gather us back together again. God does not scatter his church out except to gather it back again. And that leads us finally, I think, to ask an important question that just naturally arises out of this text for our own lives. And that's simply this. Should I stay or should I go? How do you know? In the great persecution that arose against the church, many were scattered into the regions of Judea and Samaria. I mean, Luke uses the word all there, right? But as they went, we see that they were faithful to preach the good news of the gospel, just as Philip did in Samaria. But not everyone left. In particular, Luke says that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. They stayed because even though the situation in Jerusalem had gotten very difficult, it was a hot place to be. It was deadly. They still felt like their place was there. Some stayed. Others left. Who was faithful? Which, who, who was faithful in this? Well, let me venture to answer that they both were. I don't think that the apostles were any more courageous to stay in Jerusalem than I think that Philip and the other believers who were scattered into the regions of Judea and Samaria were. They, they, they both were dominated by this purpose of exalting Christ. 
What I think is very clear from the text is that God had a plan and a purpose for both, for those who went and for those who stayed. God worked through the continued witness of the apostles in Jerusalem, and we see that he worked through witnesses of men like Philip. The practical question that naturally arises out of this text, which I think is immensely important for us to consider for our own day, is how do we know whether God is calling us to stay or whether he's calling us to go? In the past year, this is a relevant question. In the past two years, uh, past year really even, not even the year, we have seen two very powerful instances where Christians had to ask this question. Last fall, we watched in horror as the governance of Afghanistan fell into the hands of the Taliban. Only a few months before, churches there had formed, they had come out of hiding, they had formally registered themselves with the government. They did this because they said they felt like someone had to take the risk so that their children could one day openly call themselves followers of Jesus. That's why they did that. With the Taliban takeover, that registry fell into the hands of their greatest enemies. Some of our brothers and sisters chose to stay. Others had an opportunity to flee, and they did. But all who stayed paid with their lives. Then in February, Russia invaded Ukraine. Reports started coming out about pastors and missionaries who had taken their families to the border, made sure they were safe, and then gone back to be with their people. They had to decide whether to try and flee or to stay with their people. And many we've, we've heard have chosen to stay, even though it means living in a war zone. The point, the point is this. There, there comes a point in time when questions like this, they cease to be hypothetical. When we have to make decisions about whether we stay or whether we go. There there comes a day when God providentially moves people from one place to another. It it may not always be as severe of a circumstance as what we've seen happening in Afghanistan or happening in Ukraine. But we see that God does move people. He scatters His church. But He has a purpose in that. There comes a day when God calls people to the mission field. There comes a day when God calls people in the ministry. There, there comes a day when God calls someone into a different job in a different state. So how do we know when to stay? and How do we know when to go? Well, it would be utterly impossible for me to address every situation here. Every situation that could possibly arise. But I do want to give you, I think, some tools from this passage. These are not the only tools, but I think they're vital tools. Tools from this passage to equip you if you ever have to make a decision like that. The first one is this. Above all, prioritize the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus in your life. If you are in Christ, your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Your life has been secured in Him. So you can know there is no danger, no threat that can ultimately separate you from Him. And sometimes God calls us into hard places. As much as as it pains me of the thought of anybody leaving here, I do pray on a regular basis that God will raise up missionaries from this congregation to go elsewhere. The heart of every decision we make, especially the big one, must be put to this test. Am I doing this for my own purposes? Or am I doing this to glorify Christ? If you are, 
you can remain safe and assured that He's got you. And there's no real harm that can come to you because you are His. The fact the apostles stayed tells me that they were willing to risk it and to stay because God had made that clear to them. The fact that Philip and others went tells me they were willing to risk because God had scattered them out for the important work of taking this gospel elsewhere. Both, I believe, were motivated by the same purpose. And I think that's the starting place for every decision we make as followers of Christ. The second tool I want to give you is just simply this, an instruction. Learn to trust God with the place he calls you to. Learn to trust God for the place he calls you to. God opens and closes doors. In the case of our Afghani brothers and sisters, some of them stayed because they simply could not get out. They trusted God, even with their own lives, and they were faithful to the end. Who knows how God has used and will use their witness in their own land as well as in the world. In addition to embracing what God has called us to do, we must embrace the place he has called us to do that in. There are no accidents in the plan of God. Philip was well aware of the Samaritans and what they believed, but he trusted that God had him where he wanted him to be. And so he was faithful there. And God used that obedience to bring many to the joy of faith. You may not be in the place you want to be. You may long to be somewhere else. It's hard to leave home, though, and it's hard to go to another place, even when you're convinced that God is leading you there. So let me encourage you. Fight discontentment with the conviction that God is the one who rules and reigns over your life. And trust that he is in fact working through you and in you. And that he has you where he has you for a purpose. And when he's done with that, he'll take you to the next place. The third tool, last but not the least, is to commit yourself to prayer in every decision. Prayer is a crucial part of responding to God and his word. Oftentimes we have to make decisions about things that aren't necessarily black and white. Seeking God through prayer gives us confidence to walk through the doors that he opens to us. The apostles didn't just commit themselves to studying the scriptures, did they? They also committed themselves to prayer. Prayer to God for the people they served and for themselves. I do not believe that they would have made that decision to stay if they had not first sought the will of God in prayer. So commit yourselves to prayer. Now, there's a lot about this life that may feel to us like it's up in the air. Decisions about where I'm going to go to college. Decisions about what kind of job I'm going to... Decisions about whether or not I'm going to have a job in the field I want to be in. But as we see in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8, that's really not the case at all, is it? God is on His throne. Christ is ruling and reigning. And we can trust Him, not just for the promise He gives of of life to, to come, but for the life he's given us here and now. In this passage, we've seen Jesus' commitment to expand his kingdom, and we must trust that as those who came before us did also. Let's pray. Lord, you know as I've been preparing for this message, just the the way that it has weighed on my heart. Because 
Lord, it's it's easy to get comfortable where you're at. And and it's easy with with all the good gifts you provide to become content. And yet, Father, we've seen in this passage today just how you choose to stretch and and you and and mold your people and to 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 work in and through them to place them sometimes in uncomfortable positions. Take them out of places they love and to send them to places that others might despise. And yet, Father, this morning we've seen your will and your wisdom in that. As we've measured the, the scattering of the church against the, the, the great bounty, the fruit that was born out in the city in Samaria, in just one instance where one faithful brother went and just proclaimed Jesus the King and worked and saw a great harvest there. Oh, it's, it's, we just, it, this is such an important passage for us because it, it gives us an opportunity to see, that, to see the significance of what you've called us to. So Father, as, as we look at our own community, we trust that you have placed us here and now for this reason. To be witnesses for Christ. And Father, I just pray that you would not make us content with the situation that you would make us content with the grace you have supplied for us. That you would fill us with joy that overflows because we have a right view of the glory of Christ. Because we know Him. And because we know you who have called yourself our Father and who have taken steps to adopt us in through the work of your Son, Jesus. I pray, Father, that, that we would be faithful in the here and now. So whether you call us to stay, whether you call us to go, that the gospel would always be being proclaimed through us. That we would be committed to this purpose of exalting Christ. And that you would be pleased with that sacrifice. And that we would be productive in the field of harvest you've called us to be in. I pray, Father, for the witness of the men and women who are sitting here. That as we go, as we've gathered together this morning to worship you, as we get scattered out, spun out to the different places, uh, whether it's our job or our homes or our neighborhoods, that you would use a faithful witness there to bring the joy of Christ to our neighbors and our co-workers and our families and our friends. We thank you, Father, for the word that assures us of this. We thank you that the authority of Christ goes with us. We thank you that the presence of Christ goes with us. And I pray, Father, that you would use us powerfully for your kingdom. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.